August 30th, 2021. Special Monday edition and why not when your guest is Bill McClellan. We had scheduled this to air as we regularly do on Thursday, but the storms knocked out the internet while we were doing it and we lost the entire conversation. What was great was between the two tapings, Bill found out he had beaten cancer a second time. And we start off talking about exactly that, funny retracing the steps as Bill likes to be. If you are new to the podcast, my name is David Oliver, and this is my playground, Overtime with Oliver. St. Louis City mask mandate was extended today till September 29th. St. Louis Public Radio has a new CEO via San Francisco. Welcome, Tina Palminton. Hope I pronounced that right to our city. Maybe we'll find some time to chat. PNC Bank, with its 32 St. Louis locations, has raised its minimum wage from 15 to 18 bucks. Makes sense to me. Speaking of banks... Home mortgages are still hovering around 3%. Those who know more than I say not to expect that for much longer. 20 years in Afghanistan, and this was our best exit strategy? Not exactly a confidence booster. Three things you should if you have not. Netflix, count me in. Wonderful 90 minutes about the history of drums and music from the drummers themselves. Not a clear-cut recommendation, but with the recent passing of Charlie Watts, it's worth a look to see how the contemporaries of his worship the sets he played on. Quick side, I reread this story about Watts. Story goes like this. Jagger is in his hotel room on tour, keeping up with Keith. And the phone rings in Charlie's room and Mick screams, where's my drummer? And hangs up. Charlie gets out of bed, puts on the suit, wingtip shoes, goes down to Mick's room. Mick opens the door and (laughs) Watts lands a right hand solidly on Mick's jaw. I'm not your drummer. You're my lead singer. Gonna miss you, Charlie. That being said, number two, get your yayas out. It is the Stones' best live album, maybe one of the top ten live albums ever. It's the cover with the donkey and Watts with the Uncle Sam hat and picture of a woman's breasts on his t-shirt. A lot of the hits they had at the time of its September 1970 release. If you want to hear how Charlie kept all that mess together, listen to Midnight Rambler, real loud, real close. I won't ruin it for you. Also, Mick Jones's first tour, replacing Brian Jones. This is where I ask you to subscribe to the podcast, spread the word, feel free to join the Facebook group page, suggest guests you'd like to have on the show, document in St. Louis, and have it a ball. Lastly, if you like this episode, go check out previous ones we've done with Ray Hartman, maybe Vahe Gregorian or Art Holiday, otwitholiver.com, or otwitholiver wherever you get your podcasts. So, Bill McClellan. In the first go-around, we talked more about, you know, Bill growing up in Chicago. Some good stuff on why he feels it's important to include the real names of folks in his pieces, things like that. But I was a little concerned that if we just revisited some of those topics, it might sound stale. At the end of the day, I am happy with how this came out. In fact, very happy. There hasn't been anyone like him in St. Louis journalism the last 40-plus years, and I think we captured why that's the case. The parts where he discusses the importance of trusting your instincts can apply to us all. Without further ado, welcome to the Overtime family, Bill McClellan. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. Bill, I checked the weather. No storms. So we should be good. Okay. (laughs) What's your day been like? How you doing? What's going on? How am I doing? I'm doing fine. Did we have a big breakfast? Did we do anything outside before it got too hot? I, 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 yes, I live right by Forest Park, so I, 
uh, played tennis on the clay courts this morning with a couple of old friends. I mean, literally old friends <laughs> you know, where we hobble around, can't remember the score, can't see very clearly if the ball's in or out. And uh, then my wife and I took a walk in the park. So I've been busy. Do you uh, one hand backhand or two hand backhand? Oh, one hand. Old school all the way. So old, no old school. Beyond Borg, not Jimmy Connors, as far as you're concerned. You know, I mean, the the guys who hit one uh, two hand backhands are the sort of guys who wear their hats backwards. <laughs> you know, they I, I don't play people like that. I if they warm up with a two hand backhand or put their hat on backwards, I pretend I've hurt my knee or something. <laughs> Well, I guess some place to start last night, man, I'm at a party. It's a friend of my wife's. It's her, my wife's friend's 50th birthday. And so I'm designated driver guy, right? Okay. And uh, it's an outdoor party, get a little warm, go back to get some AC around 1030, take up my phone. And ladies and gentlemen, Bill McClellan, who has defeated cancer not once, but twice. Nicely done, sir. Well, I, you know, I didn't have much to do with it. And it's been, it's been like I put in the column, a really odd thing because, uh, you know, that first one, the cholangiocarcinoma, that just looked really bad. And they put a pump in and we went back to Arizona to see my son again and the pump failed there. And I had that internal bleeding and my wife called for one of those medevac things because the doctors in Tucson called the doctors in St. Louis and the doctors here said, you can't take that pump out. It's the only chance he's got. And so my wife called to get uh, me medevac, you know, and insurance doesn't cover that. I mean, that was going to be like $17,000 or something, but I passed out again while we were waiting for the plane. So they went ahead and took it out saving me money, but putting me in a precarious situation. And the doctors there, when, when they let me out of the hospital in Tucson, they said, do you know how serious this is? And I said, you know, I, I do. And they said, you have three to six months. And I said, okay. And here I am now, six years. And, and then the colon cancer, you know, when, when I got that, I thought, oh, that's nothing. I mean, I have a lot of friends who've had colon cancer. And they chopped out part of the colon. And uh, then it turns out that they didn't get everything. And, you know, the cancer was in the lymph nodes. And the surgeons at Barnes said, you know, there's too many. We really can't uh, do anything. And my oncologist said, you know, you have to go to Mayo Clinic. You got to do this. And I said, oh, send them the scans. And if they think that... Uh, you know, they can do something, I'll do it. But I don't want to fly to Rochester, Minnesota to have some doctor tell me that, you know, the surgeons at Barnes are right. It's too late. He said, just do it. I said, okay. So uh, we. I, I don't want to fly to Rochester, Minnesota and have maybe somebody save my life. That's not worth my time. Here's well, the well, well, you know, I mean, I, I thought for sure they would say the same thing the guys at Barnes said, because guys at Barnes seem very competent. So uh, my wife and I flew to Rochester, Minnesota, and we had to fly through Atlanta to get to Rochester. You know, I mean, I think you can do it through Chicago, but you can't do it through St. Louis. And the, the 
plane I got on, you know, we, we, we had to go to uh, at Atlanta. And it was really strange, Dave. It was like flying to Lourdes. I mean, everybody who was flying to Rochester, Minnesota from Atlanta was going for one reason. You know, it was winter. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, you know, I was kidding my wife saying, you know, usually when you fly that they're, they're always saying like, you know, uh, so platinum members, board theirs. And I was saying they should do like uh, uh, terminal cancer patients, fly now, uh, the uh, board now, people with uh, orphan diseases, board now. Yeah. And, and we flew there and uh, uh, you know, they took their own scans and found the same thing that the guys here had found. And the doctor who I was supposed to you know, consult with Said, said to me, you know, okay, so you need lymph node removal. Um, let's go ahead and schedule it. And he said, we'll do it quickly. And I said, well, uh, doctor, you know, I'm heartened to hear you say this, but you seem a little bit casual, you know, because there's more than one lymph node involved here. And, and he looked at me and he said, well, for a country hospital, we're pretty good, Mr. McClellan. <laughs> and, and, and then they did. And, and it was... Uh, you know, and like I say, they got almost everything. And then the people back here at Barnes uh, radiated me again. You know, I had been radiated earlier for the cholangial carcinoma. And they radiated me again. And here I am. Well, you know, when any one of my guests beats cancer twice in homage, I, I, I wear my tie loosened. I wear my collared shirt. And I, I do what I call my Bill McClellan. It's now that's what I call it. Every time somebody uh, survives cancer two times, I do my Bill McClellan. Well, that's very, very nice. I'm very flattered that you do that. All right. So as we alluded to a little, and I'm going to try not to talk about the first time we got together on Thursday, because if nothing else, I think it was good to make this more lively because we kind of understand how each of us talk and our patterns and those kind of things. But I confess that I am not the world's best expert on Donnie Brooks or on all of your columns. The reason I picked up the phone was you had a column two weeks ago that really hit me, touched me. Uh, Vacation Adventures of a Masked Man. What were you trying to accomplish? I don't want to read anything into it or put words in your mouth, but when that piece was done, what were you hoping it spoke to people about? You mean about going to Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. And wearing the mask and not the mask. And, and yeah, no, and I, I wasn't really trying to, uh, th- there was really no message in it. You know, my, my wife and I went to Michigan and, you know, I have this very nice gig with the paper where I write one column a week and it gives me the veneer of still being a reporter, you know, a thin veneer, admittedly, <laughs> but, you know, I can still call people. And so we, we were, uh, going to Michigan and uh, the editor said to me, do you want to write something? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I will, you know, because I can write about my trip. And I, I did. So there was no, there, there was no underlying message in it. You know, it's like an old song I heard once, the moral of the story is this, that every story doesn't have to have a moral. So, so, so there was no moral to it. You know, we went to Michigan and uh, you know, in Chicago, and it, it was just interesting traveling in the time of uh, the pandemic with the Delta virus surging and seeing how uh, people acted. And 
you know, like like I put Chicago was was you know wide open. It seemed like you know, except that you couldn't get a cab. I mean, there were little things that were off center. And and the pot uh, store was packed. <laughs> pot store was packed. Pot store was packed. And and right across from the Frontera Grill. I mean, it couldn't have been better. <laughs> Sitting having a margarita and looking over there. And that line. I said, what's that for? To the waiter. And he said, that's the pot store. I said, geez, that's a convenient thing. <laughs> and uh, in, a rich, in a rich part of town, too. It wasn't like it was. Is, did you tell me it's like near Michigan Avenue? Do I remember that right? Well, well yeah, it, it's on, on the right along the river, you know, a little bit north of the loop. I, you know, I've written, Dave, about the moral quandary of somebody like me when medicinal marijuana was legalized here. Because, of course, you know, I was a prime candidate for it. I mean, you know, in addition to the cancers, you know, I had a stroke not long ago, you know, maybe a year ago, where they had to operate on my uh, carteret artery. Uh, you know, I, I'm prime candidate for medicinal marijuana, and I had to make the decision, should I do the medicinal marijuana, or should I be true to the dealers who've been true to me all these years? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I wrote a column about how this is an ethical choice, and and I'm choosing to be true to the, to my school here, you know? So, so I never did get my medical marijuana card because, um, you know, the, the people I know and, 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 you know, these days I, I do gummy bears, but you know, the, the dealer that I, uh, frequent or whatever the word would be use, uh, you know, he, he makes, his own. Uh, I mean, he's he's almost like uh, that show Breaking Bad, you know, the chemist. And, and, and so I, I just, uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, and, and he saw the column, you know, when I wrote it, that it was, you know, an ethical decision, and I was going to stick with the people who helped me all these years. It's really simple. You just, you got to dance with the one that brought you, you know what I'm saying? Well, that's the, that's the way I feel. That's the way I feel. You know, and, and on Donnybrook, uh, we have a second half of the show where we interview uh, newsmakers or people in the news. And uh, we, a few weeks ago, we interviewed uh, the guy, and gosh, I'm ashamed that I can't remember his name. Normal guy, Dan, Dan, you know, he's been in charge of Normal for years and years and years in Missouri. And, and I brought this up to him on the show. I said, uh, Dan, what's the ethical uh, dilemma here? What, what, what would you tell people to do? Should they go to the medicinal marijuana route or should they continue with the dealers that, the, you know, it's kind of like a bookie, you know, should you give up your bookie for online gambling? I mean, somebody who stood with you for years when you needed it. Exactly. And, and, and Dan, the guy from normal laughed and said, well, you know, it, it's really uh, with medicinal marijuana, since the taxes aren't bad, you know, you, you might be thinking of money and and maybe, uh, you know, there's a better selection of products at the shop. And I said, well, you know, my I like the, I like the products that my guy has. Oh, and another he, bad another bad example is the diner down the street has been putting up with your crud for years. You happen to go to a different diner downtown that's better. But 
you got to have loyalty. You got to stick with the one that makes the watery eggs because they've been putting up with their stuff. Well, you know, I, I used to be uh, very upset with the city and ballpark village giving these people a big tax break, you know, to, to serve food where somebody like Charlie Gito's downtown, you know, the little pasta joint, right. not the fancy place in, uh, on the hill, but the little pasta joint downtown. I mean, Charlie's been there for years and years and a taxpayer and employing people. And all of a sudden he's got to compete with tax breaks to the wealthy ballpark village. So I, I decided at that point that, you know, I'm not going to go to ballpark village. I mean, I'm, I'm old school. And before I go to a hockey game or before I go to a baseball game, I usually go to Gito's. So I thought I'll just continue doing that. Nice. How many columns do you think you've written ballpark? You know, I haven't given that much thought. I started writing the column, I think, in 1983. And, you know, I've done four a week until I retired, which was, I don't know, three, four years ago, something, maybe longer than that. So if you do four a week times 50 weeks, that's 200. 200 times 10 years is 2,000. So you're over 4,000, 4,500 columns. Oh, I'd, I'd say, I'd say. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm uh, a person with never an unpublished thought. You know, if I think of something, I'll think, you know, I wonder if I can make that stretch into a full column. And, and sometimes I can't remember what I've written as opposed to what I've just thought or what I might have told people. And fortunately, you know, we have the computers. And, you know, so I can go on the computer to our morgue and look up like, McClellan and marijuana and see what I've written about that. And like, Oh my gosh, I've already written that, you know? So, you know, that saved me. Otherwise I would be, you know, plagiarizing myself. If you can do that. I've already done the pro gummy column. I got to move on to something else. Right. 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 <laughs> I've done the Michigan trip, you know, so, you know, uh, musicians often talk about, they sleep with a tape recorder on the side of the bed. There's a famous story with Keith Richards about how he wakes up one morning and tape recorder has run itself out and he has no idea what happened during the night. He rewinds it and there's the lick from Brown Sugar that he had played while he was in his sleep. Writers sometimes sleep with pads of paper on the side of the bed so they write stuff down. You ever do that? No, 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 I I, I don't. I mean, uh, you know, I I would sometimes uh, have notes on, you know, the back of matchbooks from a bar or a cocktail napkin or something. And I'd look at it and I go, what was that about? <laughs> you know, so, so I, I, I don't, I mean, I figure, you know, it's, it's all difficult enough w- without putting more pressure on myself by thinking like, you know, Hey, I just had a good thought, you know, I got it right there. I think, you know, it'll come back to me eventually. Or it won't. Either way, Shamo likes grape juice. What was I thinking? What was that? What was that? What I think Where was that going with that? <laughs> I think, and again, this is not somebody asking the question who's you know read forty five hundred of your columns. I understand? You just construct really well, and we have talked before. You surprised me. It was like a bigger compliment that you do very little editing. You do very little reconstructing of what comes down when it hits the paper that's basically for the most part what the readers get 
And I think that's a skill. And then I think it's a God-given gift. I think it's a God-given gift, obviously, because very few people can do that. And it's a skill to harness that and not trying to taper, to have confidence that what you have initially is the best that's going to be out there. Yeah, you know, like, like I uh, said before, you know, I, I just try to be conversational when I write a column. And, uh, you, know, you know, sometimes I'll think about it a little bit before I do it. But, you know, often when, when you write four columns a week, you don't have a lot of time to be too thoughtful or, or be too much into the, the writing itself. Like, uh, you know, I, I have friends who are more serious writers and like, they don't want to, you know, if I say, Hey, what do you have? Let me, let me see. They go, well, it's really not ready yet. Cause, cause their ego is, is tied to their writing, you know, that if it, that they're afraid that if the, the writing isn't too good, it's like a reflection on, on them. And one of the joys of newspaper writing is, is you have to write stuff so often and so quickly that you really can't be too tied into it. Like, you know, oh, I mean, you, you just write it and let it go. And, and you know, so I, I'll be thinking as I write, you know, where I'm trying to go with this sometimes, but, but usually I'll just uh, have, you know, I'll have a story in mind and I'll try to tell the story. And, you know, sometimes I'll realize as I'm writing that I don't, you know, that I'm going too quickly. I mean, I'm running through my story too quickly right. that, you know, I, you know, I need 21 inches and, you know, and I'm at, 10 and I'm almost done, you know, so, so all I have to do like, but I digress and go off on something else. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I would try not to get too deep into thinking about this stuff. The other thing about your pieces, Bill, are that they, they don't have a time shelf. Uh, you write where it's not, only funny because something right then and there that day was funny and it's not going to make sense 10 years later it's funny because it's just funny or it's a commonality that is true for a long time if not forever and i think that's even harder to do for some writers but your thoughts on that question well i i don't know you know i i think that uh you know some of this stuff i've done over the years is sort of universal i mean it, it you know, I mean, it can be about a trial, but, you know, it, it's just as true today as it was 15 years ago or something. I mean, uh, stories about, you know, I, I remember writing one about uh, an investigator for the circuit attorney's office who got a letter from a woman who was trying to find out what, what her, her husband's father had been convicted of years ago. And, and he took a serious interest in it and looked into it and found the apartment where the guy lived. He'd been uh, shot and killed during a robbery attempt. The father had been. Mm -hmm. and, and this investigator made a real effort to help his son, you know, the son of the man who was shot, understand what had happened. And, and he made you know, got police reports and everything and sent it off to uh, the guy's wife. And 
called to see if she had gotten it. And she said, I did. Thank you. I haven't even looked at it. My husband killed himself two days ago. Something mm-hmm. like that. Right, right, right. And, and, and I remember when uh, the investigator, who was a friend of mine, was telling me about this. I thought, wow, I mean, that, that's just quite a story. And, you know, I think if I were to read that column today, even though I wrote it years ago, it would still have the same impact as a story. You know, so, so that, that's really what I do. And, and so, so most of them, you know, most stories, you know, have, have a shelf life of a, a few years anyway. I might swing and miss on this. You ever write a column and when you're done, like you don't believe it. You just say there's something about this. I can't put my finger on it, but I just I don't I'm not going to go with it because something wrong about this. And then a couple of years later, you were like, aha, that's what I didn't like about the column. I knew something was going well, on. And- I, I mean, very seldom would I start to write it and then decide there was something wrong. More often, it would be in the hearing of it. You know, it's just it wouldn't sound right. And just something, you know, there'd be questions in my mind and I'd back off of it. And, you know, and I would generally on something like that, I would never find out if my misgivings were correct or not. But I would just think like this just does not seem I don't think this happened this way. And, you know, sometimes there'd be no way I could double check it. Right. So I would just have to leave it go. I guess conversely, ever worried that you were writing a story about a guy who was so good it made you nervous because maybe he's not that good? Well, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've always preferred my heroes to have serious flaws in them, Dave, because that because that's more real life, you know. I mean, right. and and the people who get beat beaten up by the system are generally people, you know, now and then it'll be somebody who's, you know, sort of uh, really a good person. But but generally, the people are getting beaten up by the system are, there's something a little bit about them that has put them in that position. And so I, I always try to, you know, at least I'm happier when when my Heroes have flaws to them. And I think that we all write and talk about what we know. You're a self-deprecating person. You've beat cancer twice. It's, oh, oh, shucks. You recognize your flaws, and sometimes that might help you even better recognize flaws in others. Well, I, you know, I, I, th- that's, that's probably right. That's probably right. I mean, I, uh, you know, I... I do understand uh, that my perception of things is often a little bit tilted or, uh, and, and, and maybe I, that makes me uh, not so trusting of people who seem to have it all figured out. And yet you've been married for 40 plus years. So that's got to say something. Well, it's just something about my wife. <laughs> you guys met in Phoenix. Is that, did I got that right? Pardon me? You guys met in Phoenix. Did I get that right? Yes, yes, we, we did. She moved into the apartment next to mine. I think really it, it, my dog won her over. You know, I, I had a <laughs> I, I had a great dog and it was a you know, you know, three little apartments next to each other. 
And, uh, you know, my, my dog was named Primo. Give you an idea of the flavor of the neighborhood. You know, Primo's two friends were Bogey and Kilo. I mean, you know, <laughs> those were wonderful days. But uh, that's living in Phoenix, baby. <laughs> yeah, yes. Phoenix was a great place to be young. And you got back to St. Louis. I got to St. Louis in 1980. There aren't a lot of jobs like a night police reporter. There's a lot of, they're never quite the same. I mean, they're kind of the same, but they're never exactly the same. Right. Yes, I got, uh, I was uh, really fortunate in that night police reporter, you know, and, and as I say, Harper Barnes hired me, you know, thank you, Harper. And uh, Harper got me on, I was in the calendar section doing listings. And I transferred from that uh, city desk to night place. And, and that was a, a blast. When you got to write columns, did you have somebody, not that you were imitating, but somebody that gave you an idea of what kind of a columnist you wanted to be? Or was it just new gig, new typewriter? Let's go. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was a new gig. And, you know, I had, you know, I grew up in Chicago. So, you know, I had read uh, Royco. And uh, then, you know, when, you know, when I worked in Phoenix, you know, we had columnists there. So I was familiar with, you know, what people were doing. And, uh, you know, so, so I had an idea of like what I wanted to do. And, you know, basically what, what I wanted to do was just tell stories and uh, not take myself too seriously. And, have a good but that's time. a thin line, man. I mean, the difference between pithy and resignating is pretty thin. That's a thin line. Between pithy and resignating? Yeah, between off the cuff and instead of that going away like it never happened, writing something still in that style, but in a way where it's got a little weight to it and it, it hangs around for a little bit and changes people's perspective. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I suppose it does. I mean, you know, with, with with me, you know, I had a huge advantage when I started out just because I had been night police reporter. So I I was already familiar with uh, a, a lot of the odd things that were going on. And, you know, our our office as night police, as police reporter was in the police station. So all sorts of characters would wander in. It was almost... Like they were auditioning for columns. <laughs> like the man saying, uh, you know, I'm looking for, uh, are you the records office? You know, well, not really. What can I do, you know, and, and talk, to, talk to people that, uh, and, you know, the, the, uh, everything then was so much uh, more relaxed. I remember a story about the uh, a night police reporter in, Los Angeles, who had gotten kicked out of his house by his wife and was living in the press office. And, you know, he was in the public restroom on the first floor of the police station shaving one morning and some new lieutenant came in and said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm shaving. He said, here? And he said, I live here. And, and <laughs> the lieutenant grabbed him and, took, and some sergeant came along and said, Lieutenant, he does live here. He's the night police reporter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, th things were slacker then. It seems like the world was a more forgiving place. 
I wouldn't disagree. I also say we've had other post-dispatch guys. Uh, Vahe Gregorian's been on. He's a fabulous writer. Turning Dan O'Neill, Jim Thomas, a couple of ones, I'm sure. To me, they're all affable. They're all very, very nice and also good reporters who you can sit down and have a beer with. There's not a lot of next generation writers that are kind of like that. It's much more professional. It's much more, what are you trying to get out of me? How's this going to help me? Uh, that's a shame. Well, I, I don't know if that's if, if that's really true, Dave. I think a lot of them, uh, a lot of the young reporters, they have to work so hard. You know, I mean, the, the staffs are smaller. It's, uh, you know, when, when you have a big staff, you know, you can spend a little more time at the Missouri Grill. Right. And, and especially, you know, in those days, everybody, I mean, the editors were down there drinking. And, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, if you could go back to like 1980, the half of the editors would be in, in employee assistance. You know, the, for your problem, they go, what problem? Well, you know, you're, you're drinking all day, you know. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I mean, it, like I say, it was a more forgiving atmosphere. And so it, it isn't that the young reporters are, you know, necessarily more serious, just they have to work harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have a small staff, I mean, you know, I, I'm a subscriber and and knowing it all from the inside, I'm Im- impressed with the fact that they can put the paper out seven days a week with a small staff and do as well as they do. The Missouri Grill are a lot of great stories that never get told. You got one that you can tell? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> they, most of the stories I have that I can tell, I've told. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't have a reservoir of... Uh, untold stories especially about the grill i mean but the, the the grill was just you know a really good time but i mean that you know I, it's almost like uh, lord of the rings you know that period in middle earth has passed i remember when the cardinals were at home against a west coast team right so the west coast riders runs pacific time means that 10 o'clock to them felt like eight o'clock body clock. So they'd get their stories done. They'd get everything. When the West Coast teams are in town, I don't know when the grill closed, but it wasn't at one o'clock. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure. And, and, you know, and and the umpires used to come into the grill. Right. I mean, I remember Joe West, who, you know, ended up marrying a St. Louis woman. I think mm. his current wife. And, yeah, I mean, the umpires would be in there and, uh, it, 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 it was all fun. I'm going to miss the Tucker building. I know hopefully they're doing nice things with Jack and Square, but they don't make buildings like that anymore. And back in the day, all the great newspapers were in those gorgeous big buildings. Right, back in the day. And, and now, uh, not so much at all. I mean, the staffs have shrunk everywhere. Uh, and they're the new corporate bosses would much prefer to be leasing space just outside of the downtown area. And that uh, I remember uh, 
years ago, uh, you know, I, I did a book on Ed Post who drowned his wife in the hotel bathtub at the Omni. And he was from New Orleans. And I went to visit, you know, to, in researching the book, I, I went to New Orleans and I wanted to talk to a couple of reporters on the Times-Picayune. And, you know, they were one of the first ones to have deserted downtown. And I remember thinking, you know, what are they, what's the newspaper office doing out here? I mean, you can't walk to the courthouse. Gotcha. And, 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 and nowadays that's very, very standard. You know, the Post-Dispatch, you know, bless its heart, is still downtown, you know, just a couple of blocks east of the old place, but they're leasing a floor. You know, they don't have the whole building anymore. You got an opinion on the future of newspapers? No, no, no I don't. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, I didn't see the demise of newspapers coming like it has. You know, I mean, I was not insightful at all. If you would have talked to me. Matter of fact, I remember somebody, uh, a businessman who's uh good friend of mine and very smart telling me years ago when the internet started you with know, computers he said you know this is going to be the end of you and i said oh i don't think so you know i mean m most people aren't going to be uh, on the internet to get their news and he, he said well he said you, you don't understand he said he said i think you're wrong he said but you don't understand business if you and I have a clothing store, Bill, and somebody puts a clothing store down the street. They don't have to take 100% of our business away to kill us. You know, profit margins being what they are, if they take 20% of our business, they might kill us. Right. He said, and, and that's going to happen. And, you know, and he didn't even uh, talk about, I mean, what really uh killed us was you know the classified ads which used to be right, right, right. the driver of our income you know if you wanted to rent an apartment you got the sunday paper if you wanted to buy a car you got the sunday paper wanted a job yeah and yeah job the whole thing and now nobody would do that i mean 15 years ago a few old people would do it but now nobody does it i mean if you just go on the internet and, you know, when that's your main engine driving your business and all of a sudden it's taken away completely, it's devastating. And, and I didn't see that coming. Did you ever entertain going to the St. Louis sun, the short lived St. Louis sun? No, no, I, I didn't. But, uh, the, the, the sun was, uh, very good to me. Because, uh, you know, I, I got a big raise. <laughs> I mean, I, I went from, you know, one day, you know, if, if I wanted like free parking, they would have told me, you know, you know, not now. It's just not in, you know, finances. And all of a sudden the son came to town, uh, Mr. Ingersoll. And the first thing they did was hire Kevin Horrigan, who was our sports columnist. Right. And. Uh, then they hired another reporter, and I forgot her name, but but a high-profile person, and the managing editor, uh, the guy who was going to be the managing editor, and, and I can't remember his name, called me up and said, you know, you know, let's talk. So I, I said, sure, you know, but you know, 
and, and we went out and have drinks or dinner or something. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy where I am. So, you know, appreciate you talking to me, but I'm not looking to leave. And he, he was a really smart guy. He was a British guy, you know, working for the Canadian, who was working for the, some Canadian outfit who was thinking of investing in the St. Louis Sun. And he had been sent to scout things out. And then, you know, Ingersoll liked him and hired him. But, you know, he told me that he advised his first bosses not to invest. Hmm. But, you know, when Ingersoll made him a big offer, he thought, well, what the heck? When when I told him, you know, I'm not interested, really. And he said, well, I I don't blame you. you I don't know how how this thing is going to really go. But uh, just the fact that they talked to me made the post-dispatch suddenly think that, you know, that their plan was to hire away all the high profile people of the post. So the, they called me in and uh, Dave Lipman was our managing editor and he was a stern guy, a, a yeller. And, uh, you know, not, not, not pleasant all the time is what I'm saying. And Dave called me in and said, uh, Bill, you know, well, we, we'd like to offer you a personal service contract. I said, well, you know, sure. I said, sure. As long as I don't have to do anything. (laughs) And he said, well, what we're going to do. And I forget the exact figures, but it was something like, you know, he said, uh, there'll be a $3,000 bonus just to sign it. You know, we'll give you a raise, but $3,000 bonus. And I said, $3,000. And he said, okay, (laughs) (laughs) $5,000. And and I, I said, well, Dave, you know, I, I can't do anything without talking to my wife. You know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Cause I'll, I'll talk to Mary and get back to you. And I went back and told Mary, I said, you know, I've never had anybody treat me like this, especially him. <laughs> and so, you know, I got, you know, like I say, I think it was 5,000. Sure. It might've been 4,000, but, but at any rate, several thousand dollars, which was unheard of and a, a substantial raise. So when the sun did go out of business, you know, after I think nine months it didn't last, yeah. something, uh, I, I took the managing editor out to Kemal's, <laughs> and, and I, I said, you know, I feel like Humphrey Bogart, you know, all the gin joints to come into you came into mine. I said, and you, you're the best thing that's happened to my career ever. <laughs> and and he laughed, and uh, you know, I bought him dinner. Yeah, no give backs, but enjoy your steak. Right. right. So, <laughs> and then do you and Mary send Kevin a Christmas card every year thanking him? No, 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 no. no. I mean, that'd be probably uh, close to taunting, you know. When's Kevin, the last time you talked to him? Has it been a while? Do you, are you guys friendly? I don't know. Were you friendly? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. We're, we're friendly. But but I have not uh, seen him in a while. You know, what with the pandemic and everything, sure. people aren't going out to lunch anymore. When, when things ease down, we'll, we'll, we'll go to lunch. I went to my first concert about three weeks ago. It was a blast. And I don't know if it was that good because I hadn't been to one in a while or they really that were that good. But I, I think it's silly that people don't want to bring their vaccinated cards into venues. I think it's the least you can do for other people. And in regards to lunches, 
I just wear the mask or at least have it with me all the time in respect to whatever the opinion of the person I'm about to talk to is. Oh, sure. Like, you know, I, I always wear, you know, I've gotten my booster shot already. Oh, good for you. I didn't even know you could do that. Good for you. Yeah. So, um, but, but I, I wear mine into the, in the grocery store and stuff. Whenever I go into a business, just out of a courtesy to the employees, because naturally, you know, they don't know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. So, you know, yeah, I, I still wear mine. All right. As we get close to wrapping this up, and again, this is Bill McClellan, take two, nice enough. We did something a couple days ago, but the storms interfered and we lost internet. I'm asking you this question because I'm not smart enough to even have an answer or an idea that would make sense. And if you also haven't invested the time, it's because your schedule is much busier than mine. I'm scared to heck of the evictions coming through and what's going to happen to all these people and where the money's going. And I've looked into it and the answer keeps changing. Can you educate me or give me your humble opinion on what we're going to be looking at when this thing actually no, takes I, I, I don't know, David. I, I I intend to kind of try to look into it. You know, I know a bunch of the people in the uh, sheriff's office who are going to be the ones carrying out these evictions. And, and so I figure out, I'll soon learn about it. But I, but I don't know enough now to really it just, figure it It out. just smells like it's going to be a mess, man. It's going to be something we haven't seen before. I guess makes it even more concerning to me. We won't have a blueprint on how to get out of it. We'll all be stumbling over each other trying to figure that out. Right. You know, I, I I'm, I'm sure there's a, a a way that it could be done fairly where you're not kicking out people who've lost their jobs because of the pandemic or, uh, but, but, the, but the government hardly ever does things the right way. I mean, it's always, things always get messed up in, uh, in the doing. So mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know, you know, cause you, you one, one could make an argument that uh, there's people who haven't paid rent in, in a year, but they, you know, went out and bought a new car or something or pe people who are just stiffing the landlord who, who himself or herself uh, is in dire straits. But, you know, it, it never seems to work that we get the people that we really should be getting. I mean, in this whole pandemic, it's, it's like the, you know, if the money that was given away were more targeted and went to people who really needed it. In, instead, I mean, I know, I know people who got that, you know, $1,200 who didn't really need it. And, you know, but I mean, they're going to take it, of course. But so, so I, I don't have any confidence that uh, this eviction thing is going to be equitable. I'm afraid we're going to throw people out on the streets who really ought to be getting help. You've been in the middle of it in St. Louis for 40 plus years. And again, a broad question that is somewhat unfair. But if I'm going to ask this to anybody, it's you. Is there something St. Louis missed on that if they hadn't, it'd be a better city? Everybody talks about city, county, and St. Louis. I'm talking, there's something maybe that you particularly think, man, if they had just done something in this area differently, we'd be a little bit better. No, I mean, there's certain things that, you know, didn't happen, you know, years ago. Uh, you, you know, there's all, all the, uh, you know, Disney, who, of course, was from Missouri. Right. 
after the success of Disneyland, was thinking of having a Disney World in St. Louis. And things didn't work out. And, you know, and, and I, I don't know if that would have been transformational, but it certainly would have helped. When they talk about the Air Force Academy was almost uh, put up over in Illinois, you know, around where Principia is, you know, in Elsa. And, you know, that might have helped. But, you know, I, I remember having a long discussion with Vince Shamel about this because uh, we, we disagreed, you know, whether the fault is in the stars or in ourselves. And I, and I thought that, you know, there's probably nothing that we could have done. I mean, we could have done a lot of things better, but essentially St. Louis was created because of the confluence of the two major rivers back when the waterways were the only way to transport stuff. And they were extremely valuable. And when you got highways and airplanes, the importance of the rivers declined dramatically and, and railroads. And so the rivers declined dramatically and, and that really spelled our doom. That was my theory. And Vince Shamel thought that there were particular things that were done, sins of omission and or commission that, you know, he put the blame more on us. And like, I remember he, he mentioned uh, the glider plane accident that killed city leaders. Do you, do you remember that, Dave? I don't, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't know whether that was in 19... 20 or 1930, but a long time ago. And Vince said that he thought that, like, that was a real bad mark for the city. Some of the leaders were knocked out. And I thought, well, you know, I said, I just, you're overestimating the leaders. But, you know. <laughs> I understand. But, that's also something that predates him so much that he can't be responsible for it. Yeah. And, 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 and the idea that, you know, if we would have had a visionary mayor, like in 1950, you know, maybe we'd have been better off. Uh, you know, when I got here in 1980, there were a lot more national headquarters here, like a headquarter city. And I think, you know, well, did we do anything wrong there? Well, you know, maybe not because it happened all around the country. I mean, all sorts of major cities that had the, their own this and their own that, losing famous bar, you know, to, to Macy's was a big blow. But I don't think there was anything that the leaders could do. Uh, lo losing the, the banks was a big blow. You know, th there are people who would tell you that losing uh, Southwestern Bell was a huge blow, you know, because Southwestern Bell then later became AT&T. Right. And uh, I think it was Whitaker who took Southwestern Bell out. And, you know, the story always was that Whitaker, who was not from here, couldn't get into St. Louis Country Club. I have heard that. You no. Know, and, and you know, I, I don't know whether that's true. I know I, I talked to a, a few people uh, at St. Louis Country Club about it. And, you know, they kind of like the story. They're not sure it's true either. But, you know, if you want to be exclusive, you have to exclude. And 
the bigger people you exclude, the more exclusive you are. You know, like if St. Louis Country Club uh, turns me down, you know, they, they're not proving anything. But <laughs> if, if, they, if they turn down David Whitaker, they're, they're proving something. So, you know, I remember when, when I wrote a couple of columns about that and talked to some people at the country club, you know, I thought they'd be much more defensive than they were. You know, but the ones that I talked to who didn't want to be named just because, uh, you know, they, it's kind of uh, low rent talking to a newspaper reporter about the club. But Haven't you, I heard you say something about St. Louis's biggest problem? I had forgotten about this. I think I may have heard you say something a couple times. St. Louis's biggest problem is old money versus new money. Is that true? Well, they're, they're, I, I think they're, they're, is something to that 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 new money is uh, more risk taking because the people who are new money they've made that money and and they have they see themselves as people who are entrepreneurial who if they lose this money they'll just make more money there there's more self confidence to new money That's and old money you know, they're not so eager to invest in new ideas. I mean, people who are in the uh, business of trying to raise capital, tell me that. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it isn't like I know that, but people who raise capital for new ventures tell me that it's much easier to talk to somebody who's made a bunch of money than it is to talk to somebody who's inherited a bunch of money because the inheritors, the old money, are thinking, if, if I lose this, I'm, I'm out. Whereas the, the person who's made a bunch of money is a little cockier. And I'll do it willing, again. I can do this again. Yeah. And, 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 and is willing to take a chance. And, and, and that, that hurts the city. I mean, you know, the, you you need people who are willing to be risk takers and put in for new ventures. And, and so I think that does hurt the city. When I told people we were going to be sitting down and by people, I mean, people who listen to the podcast and are subscribers and then friends and I'm paraphrasing it and putting it all. Here's the main question they all asked me. This is very strange. And they didn't all ask it this way. I'm putting it together. They all thought what they love the most about your column is the last line and, and how it just really causes them to continue to read because they enjoy that last bit so much. Is that something you give that any thoughts or can you answer that question to the people who asked that of me? No, I, I get, I, very little thought. And I've heard that too. People saying to me, you know, hey, I love the way you end your count. And, you know, I think to myself, well, you know, I, I'm glad that somebody likes it. But, you know, sometimes I'll have an ending in mind as I'm writing and all of a sudden something will hit me that I know exactly where I'm going. But, but often I don't. And, you know, I'll, like, you know, you were talking about, uh, column a couple of weeks ago about the mask man, you know, and they're going to Michigan. And I remember I ended that column, like sometimes a road trip should just be a road trip. And, and I just came up with that at 
saying, I don't know where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reaching the end of this at a good point. I don't have much to say. And, and so I ended it like that, but you know, it, it isn't like I've generally like have an ending in mind. See, and this is where you're, you're so good. Even at my best bill, I know I'm getting to the end of something, whether it be like an intro to this podcast interview or something else. Um, you know, I'm, I'm being hired to do a small thing on the side. When I know I'm getting to my end, I will walk away for five minutes and I'll kind of in my head go through everything that I now find important. I won't rewrite that ending, but I will take a five minute break before I write my ending. And I, it, that helps me because I'm not as good as you. I can't, I can't just spit it out. Well, I, you know, I think it's because I've done it so long, Dave, and you do it so much. And you realize that all of a sudden you're coming to an end and you have to end it. And I do like that having it ending. I mean, a column is supposed to have a beginning and an ending. And, you know, so I don't just stop. I, I do try to come up with an ending. I'm guessing the answer is no. This is not a morbid question. I'm not asking you, what's the ending to your last column? This is you're retiring and you have 50 more years to live, but have you given any thought to how your last column may end? No, no, I, I, I haven't. I've, I've given uh, thought, of course, to, you know, when I'm going to stop, you know, like, you know, I mean, I don't want to carry on too long. So, so I give that a little bit of thought, but I, I have not like plotted out my final column or, you know, farewell, or I, I, I haven't given that any thought. When the doctor tells you you beat cancer for the second time, I mean, any celebratory, you get an extra piece of cheese on the hamburger, you put another scoop in the Sunday, you do anything to celebrate? No, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I haven't. I mean, on the other hand, you know, my habits are such, Dave, that, uh, you know, I, I celebrate a lot. I mean, I, I really do like you're talking about like having a celebratory drink. You know, I mean, I'll probably uh, have a gin and tonic as soon as I leave here. Although, you know, I was having a gin and tonic before I got the news of the latest scans. So it isn't like I thought. I have to do something special. And, you know, and I'm in a very nice position where I only write one column a week and I, you know, and I do Donnybrook and I don't have a lot of uh, things on my plate. So, you know, I, if, if it weren't for the pandemic, I'd be traveling more. You know, the um, other thing too, and I know that you've got books out there already, compilations of your columns. Uh, here's two cents you can throw away. The 50 most important columns St. Louis should have, not necessarily because they're your best written ones, but because Post-Dispatch hires somebody and they get together with you and you spend three months on a project and you put a really nice coffee table book together that can last for generations. And the title is somewhat because you could be the one who could write this, the 50 most important columns everybody in St. Louis should read. Well, I, I wouldn't like that idea, frankly. I mean, because, you know, I, I don't think of uh, the columns that I like best as being necessarily 
important columns that somebody should read. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I've in many ways been like a historian chronicling St. Louis four times a week. You know, I've got and I've done it over, you know, almost 40 years, I think you said. Right. Something like that. And, uh, you know, mo most of the columns that I like it are not important or really safe. They're just uh, interesting stories about, you know, like say the, the history of the city and, the, and, and I've been doing it long enough that some of the names come back. You know, I mean, uh, I, I'm always impressed with how names will, you know, be out of here for 20 years and all of a sudden be back in, in, in a new way, you know, like the, the great crimes of uh, St. Louis, you know, there was uh, the Greenlease kidnapping, you know, although that was in Kansas city, you know, uh, Bonnie and, and her lover came, came here and, and were caught. And, you know, the, the money from the, kidnapping about half of it was stolen you know by lieutenant lou shoulders and you know years later uh you know then uh lieutenant shoulders son uh was killed in a uh car bombing and sometime later you know 20 years after that there was a little brief in the paper about a uh woman who was compacted to death you know she'd crawled into a uh recyclable bin to sleep on a cold night and they came and got her and you know dumped the bin and compacted it and, and she was killed you know and, and i remember reading looking at that little story and it and i forget what her name was but it said uh her maiden name was shoulders and i thought i wonder and i called a friend of mine in the county police department who shares my uh, interest in, in weird things. And I say, could this possibly be Lou Shoulder, Lieutenant Shoulder's granddaughter? And he looked into it and it was, you know, so I was able to do a story, uh, you know, her last hours. I mean, the cop and I worked out, you know, exactly what had happened to get her in the compact thing. And uh, the cop who was Lou Shoulders' driver, who was also arrested and went to prison wrongfully. You know, I mean, he was just the lieutenant's driver on that night, uh, was, was named Nolan. Years later, the next, and, and I got to know some of his kids just because I had, I wrote a column about crimes of the century or something and put Shoulders and uh, Nolan together. And, and one of his kids called me up and said, you know, my dad wasn't really a bad guy in this. And I got together with the family and heard the stories and checked it out and realized that, you know, no one really wasn't, a, Dolan was his name, Dolan, wasn't a bad guy. You know, had just been the driver and then was afraid to come in on the lieutenant because the lieutenant uh, was a dangerous man and had bad connections. And uh, I got to know the Dolan family and when we had that Missouri miracle case in Kirkwood, you know, where Michael Dovlin uh, kidnapped uh, a kid and 
the kid was missing. I forget his name. And then kidnapped another kid. And the police, they had a, a description. Was that the, the emo's employee kid? Was that the yeah, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Right. And that, that was such a huge case that, you know, when, when they were looking for that first kid, and then who was in the apartment, but the kid who'd been kidnapped like five years earlier. Right. I mean, it was very strange. And uh, the one of the Dolan kids called me and said, you won't believe this, but we, the Dolans, were neighbors of the Devlins. And we thought that we were such a weird, unhappy family, you know, because our dad went to prison in the Greenlease kidnapping case and everything. And the Devlins were this all-American family who lived down the street. And now it turns out that Michael Devlin was this monster. And I thought, you know, everything comes together, you know, all these connections. And then one of the Dolan boys got in trouble, uh, was in the United Arab Emirates. The company he worked for, uh, there was some problem with uh, guns, weapons being smuggled. And the, the Dolan kid didn't have anything to do with it, but he was arrested in the United Arab Emirates because he was the manager of a company or something. The Dolans were trying to get the State Department involved. And they came to me and said, you know, could you write something? You know, because we, we're trying to get the State Department involved. And I said, sure, I can do that. And they said, you know, we're also trying to get uh, our cousin, Bishop Tim Dolan, to do something. And I thought, are you kidding me? I can tie Tim Dolan to the Greenlease kidnapping? And, and, you know, uh, Tim Dolan, the bishop, said he didn't know the Dolans, you know, that maybe they were related, but he, but, but at any rate, you know, every, everything, all these weird confluences in a place like St. Louis. But I can't think of 50 important columns that you should read. I got I'd kick myself if I didn't ask the last question. I thought we had wrapped it up. I'm going to ask you this. Can you pinpoint or have any idea where you got your everyday enthusiasm? Your waking up every day, looking at things from their own perspective, excited to find out something new every day. Did you get that from anybody? Is that a stupid question, David? That's how we'll end this up. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think so. But I think it's a, a really important trait to have as a newspaper person to still be enthused about a story. You know, uh, did you read the book Ironweed? Sure, actually did. Oh, okay, and you know, and it's part of a trilogy. Better and, book than a movie, by the way. Okay, well, the, the trilogy, one of the books in the trilogy is Billy Phelan's Greatest Game. And there's a newspaper columnist in that book. And, uh, you know, he, he's not a hugely successful guy or anything, but he, he's always enthused. And there, there's a point in there where his wife is making dinner and all of a sudden he comes down the stairs and she says, and he said, I got to go. And she said, uh, what about dinner? And he said, don't have time, honey. I'm off on a story. And and Kennedy wrote something like, and she watched him go, a, a man who just hadn't grown up like other men, off on another story. And I read that, and I remember the first time I read it, I thought, wow, you know, that that's me. Because my, my wife would always kid me about, you know, 
the uh, greatest trial of the century, you know, whatever I was covering, like I'd sometimes call and say, hey, uh, honey, I'm going to miss dinner. I'm going out with the lawyers right now. You know, this is a great trial. And she'd go, I know, greatest trial of the decade, <laughs> right? And I go, you know, it is, it really is. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to have. And, I, and I've been blessed with being able to get excited all the time. Well, good for Marion. Tell her, thank you for letting you be you. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell her you said that, David. Take care, man. Okay. Bye-bye. So another one for the books. If you liked it, know others that like Bill's work. Appreciate the favor of passing it along. I think Bill's air quote story is one more folks should know about. Another good one this Thursday, already in the can, so no worries. Paul Mono Jr., Overtimers know how much past guests love his place. He's got a really good Denzel Washington story you're not going to want to miss. As we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.